0: Father, you are our God, you are our Creator. We thank you for what we're learning about how orderly and perfect you are, how caring you are for us, how you provided a place for us physically, how you provided a place for us emotionally. You've given us fellow believers to to love and to care for us, and how you provided for us through your Son Jesus Christ for our spiritual well-being. You are complete and perfect in everything that you do. And we pray today as we look continually into that creation that we truly get a glimpse of just how perfect you are and how much you love us. And we love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Herbert Spencer died in 1903, and he was heralded as a great genius and a brilliant scientist because he is the man credited for having discovered the five categories of that which is knowable in the universe time force action space and matter however what Herbert Spencer was acclaimed for having discovered was actually stated long before the man was even born in the very first sentence of the scripture in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth in the beginning time God force created action the heaven space and the earth matter as we continue with our marvelous look at the Genesis account of creation, you can open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1, we come to God's activities of the what day? Fourth day, we're on the fourth day. To this point in time, he had finished his forming work, forming his originally created shapeless and void matter called earth. Earth which he simultaneously established in both time and space. And then he had given it light and he had given it shape, that shape being the shape of a sphere, and he had given it motion. We know it was beginning to turn on its axis. And that was all on day one. Then he gave it an atmosphere and a hydrosphere on day two and dry land, which is called a lithosphere which he immediately filled with vegetation or a biosphere and all that he did on day three. Now, on the fourth day to which we come today, as we discuss Genesis 1, verses 14 to 19, God filled the created heaven, the, the space of day one, the space of the universe. He filled it with lights, and these lights are actually light bearers or luminaries and of course in the case of the moon which he also made on day four the moon you know does not give light it is a light reflector but the bible knows that because in job 25 5 it actually tells us and this was long before men ever came to know it that the moon shineth not so the bible does know that although for for our sake here it does call it a light or a a luminary now in considering These heavenly heavenly luminaries. We are going to look at five main divisions for our outline purposes. We'll look at the creation of the heavenly bodies. Then we'll take a broad consideration of the heavenly bodies and give you a lot of statistics that are rather interesting, kind of mind-boggling, but they're very interesting. Then we'll talk about some cosmogenies of the heavenly bodies. And if you've never heard of that word, it just means it's a cosmogenies are uh, not a name of recipe. It's talking about theories of how the universe originated just a fancy word for that and then we'll look at the commission of the heavenly bodies and lastly we'll look at the completion of the creation of the heavenly bodies. so that's where we're going let's look at the passage itself as we begin with the creation of the heavenly bodies part one and i'll read verses 14 through 19 of genesis chapter one And God said, Let there be lights in the firmament of the heaven to divide the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be for lights in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, and the lesser light to rule the night. He made the stars also. And God set them in the firmament of the heaven to give light upon the earth and to rule over the day and over the night, and to divide the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. The power which put the untold billions of stars into the universe was none other than, once again, the power of God's spoken word. God spoke for the fifth time, even though this is the fourth day, it's the fifth time because this is his fifth act of creation, if you go back and read through it, fifth time, and he said, let there be lights in the firmament of the heavens. Now, the word for lights in the Hebrew, the original Hebrew, here is the word maor, M-A-O-R, as you see right there, maor, which refers to light givers or light bearers. And this is a slightly different word than was used back on day one of creation when God said, in verse 3, let there be light. That word was the word or, just O-R. Now, the light of day one, therefore, was intrinsic light, just just light. <laughs> but on the fourth day, God created the light bearers themselves. He may very well, remember we've talked about this before, he may very well have merely connected the light waves and the light particles of day one to his created light generators of the fourth day day four now since both the light of day one and the light of um, day four the lights are the luminaries of day four serve the same function which was to divide light from the darkness they both serve that same function they both say that look at verse four and look at verse 18 this indicates that the two were essentially the same the light of day one and the lights of, of day four are essentially the same. And the length of the day-night cycle was the same also in each case because each both day one and day four end with the same boundaries or have the same boundaries when it says, and the evening and the morning were the first day or the evening and the morning were the fourth day. So as I've stated in a previous lesson, the light of the first three days of the creation week was light which was coming during the daytime just as though it were coming from the sun, and the light of the night was coming just as though it was emanating from the reflected light of the moon during those first three days. The stars, which God also created on day four, did not, as evolutionists would tell us, did not take billions and billions of years for their light to reach the earth, just because they are billions of light years away from the earth. The celestial bodies were created, just as everything else in the creation week, with the appearance of age and with the ability of age. Remember, just as God did not have to plant seeds in the ground and then wait weeks or months or whatever for those uh, different kinds of plants, in some cases trees, he'd have to wait years for them to grow to maturity so that they could reproduce. And just as he did not bring Adam into the world as an infant and then have to sit around and wait for years for Adam to grow up to the point of maturity before he could reproduce, neither did God take or need millions and millions or billions of years to wait for the light from the stars to reach the earth. In fact, there have been studies, recent studies done, that say that light might have traveled as much as 10 billion times faster at the time of creation than it does today. So that would also have taken care of that problem, and they're researching that. And it may have been the fall, again, the curse, which slowed down the travel of light, the speed of light. Now, one of God's purposes in creating the stars in the very beginning was to give light upon the earth right it says that in the in the scripture i just read that was one of his purposes from the very beginning and of course to aid man in other ways you know so that man could um, have a calendar and and take calculate time we'll talk about that later on in this lesson so from the very beginning from the moment of their creation they must have been visible because this was their purpose this was god's purpose in creating them was to give light so from the very beginning adam must have been able to look up into the sky and see them so it would seem then that god may have created the light trails from the stars including the sun and the moon on day one before then creating the actual stars and the sun and the moon themselves on day four now why would god do that why would he do that? Well, for one thing, he would do that in order to refute the evolutionists, who he knew, because he knows the end from the beginning, he knew they would come along and um, refute everything that, that he has said here in his holy word about creation, and also to refute the pagans of ancient day, days. The, um, the evolutionists assume that the earth was either thrown off from the sun— Or that both the earth and the sun condensed from a huge proto-sun of whirling dust and gases and dust particles billions of years ago. And ancient men believed that the earth and all living things on the earth owed their existence and therefore their worship to what? To the sun. You see them here, worshiping the sun. And they made the sun their creator God. So God purposely, it would seem, God purposely made the sun and the moon and the stars, because man has always had a problem also worshiping the the moon and the stars, three days after he had made the earth. Because in this shocking reversal of what the natural man assumes, and this is the natural man today, too. If you went down the street and asked people, you know, which was created first, the earth or the sun, what would they say? the sun probably nine times out of ten that would be their response so in this reversal the lord makes it clear that he and not the sun is the creator of the earth and that he placed the stars in the sky in order to serve his purpose one of which is to show, show forth his glory and his handiwork as we're told in psalm 19 1. god is not dependent on the sun for either the earth's material substance or for the sustaining of life. And he demonstrated that, didn't he, by creating the light and the day and night cycle of the earth even before he created the sun and the moon and the stars. The origin of the earth is to be traced to the infinite and personal God of the Holy Scripture and not to some protocosmos or some chance happening Big Bang that took place billions of years ago. And we'll discuss that a little later this morning too. Without the stars, which literally light up the skies, and this is an actual photograph here, we would never know the tremendous size of all that God has created. Because our telescopes, and they've made some fantastic telescopes, But all they would look out at would be total darkness, total pitch black darkness. So they would never see how huge the universe is if God didn't put the stars out there. They would just see nothing. Yet because of the lights from the stars, the universe, at least in part, we can't ever see, we haven't ever seen to the end of it, but at least in part, it can be investigated. It's vastness, of course, absolutely staggers the imagination and it is totally impossible to digest it I've been looking at figures all week and you just you can't conceive of these figures but in that fact alone that it just staggers the imagination it does give testimony to its creator who is beyond comprehension in his infinite wisdom and power so what I want to do next as we go to part two of our outline which is a consideration of the heavenly bodies, is to just look at some interesting statistics. You don't have to worry about trying to memorize these or anything. Just listen and enjoy hearing about them. Now, although it does feel like we are motionless as we stand or sit or lie down here on earth, I mean, as you're sitting there, it doesn't feel like you're really going anywhere, does it? But we are actually on such a wildly fast ride that it should make us dizzy just to think about it. The Earth is rotating on its axis at a speed of over 1,000 miles per hour at the equator. All right, so we're spinning around at 1,000 miles per hour, while at the same time, what are we also doing? We are revolving around the sun at a speed of 67,000 miles an hour. Actually, during the course of an average lifespan, an individual will have completed 70 trips around the sun, which is approximately 41 billion miles. So don't ever have a pity party and tell somebody that you never get to go anywhere. (laughs) (laughs) Because in your lifetime, you will have traveled. This doesn't even count, you know, your travels in the car you will have gone 41 billion miles. Now, furthermore, we are also moving with our entire solar system around the nucleus of the Milky Way galaxy to which we belong. And we are doing this at the speed of about 500,000 miles per hour. This is in addition to spinning and going around the sun, then our whole whole The solar system is going around the Milky Way, all right, at 500,000 miles an hour. At the same time, our whole galaxy, the Milky Way galaxy, is also moving around the universe at the incredible speed of 1,350,000 miles per hour. So, what all of this calculates to is that we are covering 57,360,000 miles of empty space. every 24 hours whoa and you thought those roller coaster rides were bad and we are traveling here's the figure this is the total figure we are traveling twenty billion nine hundred and thirty six million four hundred thousand miles per year so just remember that when you feel sorry for yourself that you never get to go anywhere now our sun which is of course the closest star to our planet Earth, and the one which gives us our daylight and the the one around which we rotate makes up, this is incredible too, it makes up 98% of the mass of our solar system. That means most of our solar system consists of the sun. The planets and the moons and the little meteors and comets only make up total of 2%. The rest of it is the sun. Now, if the sun was hollow, you could put 1,300,000 Earths inside of it. Is that big? That's big. The sun at its inner core is about 27 million degrees Fahrenheit. Hot. Huh? They know that. They know that. I don't know how they know that. (laughs) <laughs> with instruments and all. Yeah. And here's here's the air pressure. The air pressure is 250 billion times the air pressure that we have here on Earth. Now, each and every second which passes, in about 3 past seconds passed while I said that, <laughs> each second that passes, 700 million tons of hydrogen and helium of hydrogen are converted into helium. And in the process, 5 million tons of pure energy is released. 5 million tons of energy every second. The sun produces an amazing 3.8 million billion billion watts. And if we could harness just one second's worth of this energy, just one second's worth, we would have more energy than mankind has used in his entire history. Whoa. <laughs> and this is only from an average star. Our sun is just an average star. It's not really that large. It's only 850,000 miles in diameter. Our earth is 8,000 miles. The sun is 850,000 miles across. But there's another star called Antares, which is 3,000. Hundred million miles in diameter, which means that if Antares was hollow, you could put 64 million of our suns into it. 64 million. And remember, you can put 1,300,000 of our Earths into our sun. <laughs> Yet the constellation Hercules has even a bigger star than Antares. In the constellation Hercules, there is a star which could hold 100 million stars the size of Antares. But it gets even worse. The largest known star there could be others that are even bigger but the largest known one is named Epsilon and it could easily hold several million stars the size of the one in Hercules. Now, are you able to grasp that? I can't. I mean, it just goes beyond what I can understand. Epsilon's Volume is is some 27 billion times greater than the volume of our sun. 27 billion times greater. I mean, a sun like that would would take up our whole solar system and even go beyond it. That's how big it would be. It's just it's it's too big to understand. So is it not then another testimony to the divine inspiration of the scripture? that Moses, look at verse uh, 16. Look at verse 16. Isn't this an indication of divine inspiration that Moses did not say that our son was the greatest light? Aren't you glad he said the greater light? Because if he had said the greatest light, you could throw your Bible away. It would have an error in it. Because as we just talked about, the sun is not the greatest light in the firmament. There are many suns much bigger than our sun. But, of course, back in Moses' day, all the ancient peoples thought that the sun was far bigger than the stars. They had no idea. They, had, they didn't have telescopes. Also, it's a testimony to the divine inspiration of the scripture that Moses even said that the greater light rules the day and the lesser night light rules the night. Because you know what all the ancient people thought? If you didn't have telescopes and you didn't know any better, and you looked out at the moon at night and then looked at the sun during the daytime, which one would you think was the greater? The moon. The moon looks far bigger than the sun because it's so much closer to us. So again, Moses wouldn't have known this. He didn't have telescopes and all the scientific instruments that we have today. God knew it, though, because he created them, and he's the one who inspired Moses to write it correctly. Then there is the fact that our entire solar system, the sun, the nine known planets, they speculate there may be a tenth planet past Pluto, the sun, the nine planets, and their moons is merely a small member of the Milky Way galaxy. The Milky Way is about 560,000 million million miles across and it contains some 300 billion stars. This is our one little our, our one little galaxy. The Milky Way is just one part of a galactic cluster which is known as the local group. And this local group consists of 32 galaxies, like the Milky Way. And it extends across a spherical volume of space, 3,260,000 light years in diameter. I've stopped talking about miles now. It's 3,260,000 light years in diameter. And that's simply incomprehensible when you understand that just one light year equals approximately 6 million million miles. Again, it's, we just can't fathom it. Now, there are about 150 galaxies which are close enough to our Earth for us to see the stars within them. Beyond them, there are millions and perhaps billions of galaxies and supergalaxies, which are clusters of galaxies, and each galaxy, on an average, contains anywhere from about one billion to one trillion stars. Now, despite the immensity of these galaxies, they merely appear as little dots of light surrounded by tremendous reaches of empty black space. So see, sometimes at night when you look out and you see a little star up there, it may not even be a star. It may be a whole galaxy. The universe, to make a vast understatement, is so immense that it really is absolutely impossible for us to understand, just as the creator of the universe is really so infinite that he's impossible for us to understand. That's why it will take eternity for us to get to know him. It is truly amazing, and it does serve as a testimony to the wonder and to the greatness of our God, that Psalm 8 tells us that all the heavenly bodies of the universe, the planets, the moons, the stars, the galaxies, the supergalaxies plus just the vastness of space itself is merely, look at it if you want to, Psalm 8 verse 3, all of this is merely the work of God's fingers. That's what it tells us in Psalm 8 verse 3. Just think what God could have done if he put his whole arm into the work. (laughs) I mean, this is just the work of his fingers. Furthermore, all these cosmic bodies were merely created for the benefit of man, who was to exist on one relatively minuscule planet purposely prepared and perfectly prepared for God himself. The sun and the moon were given to serve as lights for earth by day and night and the stars well they were kind of just an additional little touch a touch of God's fingers notice how rather minor the stars are compared to the sun and the moon in this uh, day four account look at verse 16 again it says and God made two great lights The greater light, which is the sun, to rule the day, and the lesser light, the moon, to rule the night. And what does it say then? He made the stars also. Now, do you know in the original Hebrew, if you ever see words in italics in your Bible, that means that in the original language, they're not there. In the original Hebrew, it merely says, the stars also. It's just kind of like an addendum. It's like a postscript. Oh, P.S., by the way, God made the stars too. Isn't that incredible? (laughs) And isn't it significant, if you think about this fact, that God took some 50 chapters in the Bible to speak about the tabernacle, the place of sacrifice, the place where God met with man, but he only took used three words to speak about all the billions upon billions upon billions of stars of space. Three words compared to 50 chapters. Now, why do you suppose that is? Well, perhaps it is because the Bible's primary purpose is to God, reveal God's way <clears throat> of redemption, of which the tabernacle is a picture. To create the stars and all those galaxies and And everything out there in the universe was nothing for God. I mean, all he had to do was speak the word. He just had to speak, and there they were. But to redeem mankind, he had to suffer, didn't he? The Lord God, you see, is far, far more interested in the gospel than he is in galaxies. He's far more interested in people than he is in planets. And he's far more interested in souls than he is in stars. That's our God. Although the stars are so much larger than the earth, they are of a much simpler structure. Stars are primarily made of helium and hydrogen, which is essentially very simple. But the structure of the earth is one of great complexity and perfection, right? I mean, we're just exactly the right distance from the sun. We have this perfect atmosphere. Everything we've been looking at in our study shows us how perfect it is. One moved this way or that way, and no life could be here. But all of this shows us, this demonstrates the principle that to God, complexity and organization are far more meaningful measures of importance than just mere size. Now, those of you who are little, you like to hear this, don't you? (laughs) But complexity and organization are far more important to God than just size. Now, just, let's take an example. Just one human cell in your body, and your body is made up of uh, some 75 trillion cells in the average body. But take one human cell is vastly more Complex than even the largest of stars, that star called Epsilon. Each cell is literally a world full of as many as 200 million tiny groups of atoms called protein molecules, so that each cell in your body is actually a microcosm in itself. It's a mini universe, every cell in your body. The largest molecule in the cell is the dna molecule remember we've talked about the dioxyribonucleic acid molecule and it is found in every single cell in your body the dna strand carries every single bit of hereditary information from the parents to the offspring of all living organisms and it does so in a very precise and a very meaningful sequence producing a product far more sophisticated than the most complex computer. Now the length of each DNA strand of a human cell, the length, if you were to, it's coiled up, but if you were able to take that little DNA strand and uncoil it and stretch it out, it would be six feet long. Isn't six the number of man? Very interesting, that it would be six feet long but it would be microscopically thin. It would be, it's so thin that it's less than a trillionth of an inch thick. How they can even see it under a microscope. I mean, we must have fantastic equipment to even see it. Now, if all of the coiled up DNA strands of all the cells of just your body were unwound and they were joined together end to end, do you know they would stretch from the earth to the sun 400 times and back 400 times, earth to the sun, or from the earth to the moon a half a million times. If all the densely contained information that is coded and written up in just the DNA molecule, if it was written out in typewritten form, it would fill the Grand Canyon 50 times. Now, having mentioned the incomprehensible size of the universe and all the stars that are out there, and then the vast complexity, this is just very briefly that we discuss the vast ca- complexity of the microscopic world of cells, let's talk about something in between. Your brain. <laughs> the human brain weighs only three pounds and yet it is so incredibly complex that we could literally spend a whole year just discussing the brain and not even get to all of it. It has been estimated, now you'll enjoy this, it has been estimated that the brain is capable of holding one million times more information than anyone could possibly learn in a lifetime. So don't tell me I'm pushing you too far and that you can't handle the homework. (laughs) Your brain has the capacity to hold one million times more information than anyone could ever learn in a lifetime. Take Einstein or, or anyone. And what this shows us is that man was made to live a lot longer than he does. He was created to live so that he could accumulate a million times more knowledge than he does. The human brain consists of 100,000 billion billion electric connections, neurons, and that is more than all of the electrical appliances on the face of the earth. Yet the brain can fit into a quart-sized jar, and it operates for approximately 70 years on only 10 watts of power fueled primarily by cheeseburgers and french fries <laughs> are we not fearfully and wonderfully made as the scripture says and we've only talked about a cell in a brain i mean the whole rest of us when we get into the creation of adam i hope i can spend some time talking about how fearfully and wonderfully made the human body is we are obviously the products of the hands and the minds the mind of a, of a powerful, intelligent creator God. So anyway, we could go on indefinitely talking about the miracle of the universe, the miracle of the human body and its complex, complexity, but what I want to get across primarily is that God has placed his emphasis on man, not on what's out there. Not on the vastness of the universe, but on man. The stellar skies simply serve as a testimony to man of God's greatness. And that they do, don't they? I mean, even though we can't see hardly just such a small percentage of all the stars that are out there, when we look out just with our naked eyes unaided by a telescope and we see the stars, doesn't that alone testify to the greatness of God? Can you imagine if we could see all the stars what it would do it says psalm 97 6 the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory that's another you know this is called natural revelation as opposed to written revelation the creation is god's natural revelation there isn't a person on the face of the globe who can't look out at the sky at night and wonder about the one who put those stars there all right. Let's move on now and talk about some cosmogenies of the heavenly bodies. I've lost my outline, but it's you, you know cosmogenies it comes from the word cosmos. That's where we get the word cosmetic. Cosmos um, means world or um, universe. It speaks of the world or the universe and everything that's in it. I forget what cosmetics takes takes that which is disordered, chaotic, or something, and and I can't remember, and arranges it. It's a joke, I can't remember it. Anyway, cosmogenies are theories about the origin of the universe, or the cosmos. No cosmogony qualifies as being scientific because it involves events of the distant past which cannot ever be tested and duplicated in the present so they none of these qualify as being quote unquote scientific using scientific methods now there are really only two possibilities for the origin of the universe either god created everything or everything somehow happened by irrational random chance that's it you either have one choice or the other Evolutionist George Wald of Harvard University and a man who was a winner of one of the Nobel Prizes in physiology and medicine. Now, this man is an evolutionist. He acknowledged the dilemma of the creation of the universe in the Scientific American Journal. And this is what he said, quote, the reasonable view was to believe in spontaneous generation. You know, that everything just spontaneously came about, had a spontaneous beginning. The only alternative was to believe in a single primary act of supernatural creation. There is no third position. One has to contemplate the magnitude of this task to concede that the spontaneous generation of a living organism is impossible. Yet, here we are as a result I believe of spontaneous generation." End of quote. Brilliant man. He won the Nobel Prize. (laughs) Now this man, even after having admitted that spontaneous generation of living organisms is impossible, would yet say that the entire universe is the product of irrational spontaneous generation. So he therefore, I chose him because he presents to us or for us, A perfect example of the mind frame of the committed evolutionist who will not admit to a supernatural creator even in the face of all logical reasoning. Their minds are made up, don't bother me with the facts. That kind of mind frame. I like how Christian author C.S. Lewis took the discussion of the existence of the universe to its logical end, okay? If you think through this, here's what he says. Quote, if the solar system was brought about by an accidental collision, then the appearance of organic life on this planet was also an accident, and the whole evolution of man was also an accident. If so, then our present thoughts are accidents the accidental byproduct of the movement of atoms. This holds for the thoughts of the materialists and the astronomers as well as for everybody else. But if their thoughts are merely accidents, why should we believe any of them? (laughs) I see no reason for believing that one accident should be able to give me a correct account of all the other accidents." End of quote. That's logical. It is. That's very logical. Now, it is the belief, however illogical, of many evolutionists that the stars and the Earth and subsequently all life on Earth, that everything owes its existence to a a once-upon-a-chance-time explosion. This theory is commonly referred to as, you all say it, a Big Bang Theory. The suggestion of this popular secular explanation for the origin of the universe is that all of the matter and energy of the universe was, at one time, billions and billions of years ago, concentrated into a single spot, which has even been described as small as being that of an electron. Now, this theorized object, this electron, which, of course, has an unknown source. Where did it come from? Well, they don't get into that. It sat in the void of space. Where did space come from? Well, they don't get into that. How long did it sit there? Well, they don't get into that for some unknown length of time until suddenly it exploded. Where did the energy come from to explode it? Well, they don't get into that. What was the reason for the explosion? Well, they don't get into that. Now, from this explosion, it is said that all of the stars and all of the galaxies and all of the planets and eventually you and me (laughs) have developed. This theory, however, is in serious trouble, not only because it goes against the Bible, it is totally anti-biblical, but also it is encountering numerous scientific problems as well. It is well known that a big bang explosion would produce a generally uniform distribution of matter in all directions. If you have a little tiny thing that explodes, the explosion will shoot out matter in all directions almost uniformly. It won't just, a lot of it go this way and some of it go over this way and then big spaces in between. That's not how explosions work. There are tremendously vast spaces of emptiness out there in the universe and huge supercluster cluster ribbons of stars and and uh, gigantic sheets of galaxies which stretch for millions of light years across and there are colossus clusters of quasars and there are binary stars stars which orbit around one another two stars orbiting around one another and there are star systems which orbit or revolve around a solid center mass. And there is nothing about any of them which is common to all of them. As we've mentioned before, every star, and this is true of every galaxy also, every one is different. It's like individual fingerprints or snowflakes. Every single one is different. Now, all of these facts defy the Big Bang's theory of how matter is distributed. Lerner, who is a, f- a physicist, like many others, is firmly convinced, this man is not a creationist, but he is firmly convinced that the Bing- Big Bang is impossible. He says this, quote, no energetic processes, even unknown ones, could have occurred that were vigorous enough To either create the large-scale structure astronomers have observed or to stop their headlong motion once created. There is simply no way to form these structures in the 20 billion years since the Big Bang. In other words, what he's saying, no explosion could have created the vastness of the universe that we have with so many billions and billions of stars and galaxies and everything. Plus, he says, no explosion could explain how all these um, suns and planets and moons and everything would stop from just going on and on and on. Why would they stop and start orbiting? There's no explanation for that either. That's what he's saying. Now, if we can just, in our minds, imagine being an eyewitness to a massive volcanic eruption in which tons of flying rock and dust spewed out and then settled down, what do you suppose would be the odds that the settling debris would produce an entire city of skyscrapers and streets? What would be the possibility of that? Well, it is perfectly safe to say that it would never happen. Zero chance of possibility. No matter how much time was involved, <laughs> even give it billions of years, it would not produce skyscrapers and streets. Nowhere in the universe has science observed explosions producing the complex ordered arrangements which the evolutionists need. Explosions, this, I know this is big news for all of you, explosions do not produce order. Explosions produce disorder. Disorder. I mean, that is common sense. It takes more faith, and I mean this, it takes more faith to believe that an accidental explosion, source of energy unknown, of some unexplainable matter, source unknown, could ultimately result in every one of the fantastic galaxies and the unique stars and their fixed orbits and all of the physical laws of the universe and even the very existence of every plant and tree and shrub and flower and grass and every single living creature from the giraffe to the elephant to the little tiny mouse to the human being, it takes more faith to believe that than to believe that god created it all just as we're reading about it in the genesis 1 account it really does they have to have more faith than we do in truth though many scientists are abandoning the big bang theory and they are labeling it as hopeless another secular theory regarding the origin of our solar system now not talking about the universe i'm talking about the origin of our solar system tells us that the planets formed, including Earth, when a star happened to pass nearby to our star and its magnetic field tore off matter from our sun. And that matter then somehow or another turned itself into our solar system. This theory is called the fission theory. It does not explain where the stars or their orbits came from, right? because it says they were already there. Just one star passed by our star, and there came our solar system. Furthermore, if the Earth and the other planets and the 63 known moons, how many moons do they know about in our solar system? They know of 63. Did you know that there were that that many moons? 63. There probably are more. But um, if the Earth and these 63 moons and the other planets broke off from the sun, then what would you expect? You would expect that the planets and their moons would have common material and similarities with their mother sun, wouldn't you? Yet they don't. The four terrestrial planets, which are Venus, uh, Mercury, Venus, Earth, and Mars, They're called terrestrial planets because they actually have land, you know, that you can walk on. The other planets are made of primarily gases. Remember how we said you can't even land on Jupiter? All right, well, the four terrestrial planets contain less than 1% of hydrogen and helium. And yet, what did we say the sun is? 98% of it is hydrogen and helium. In fact, the moon landings have allowed men to study the moon's composition and its structure, and it has been found that the moon is composed of vastly different structures from the earth. Even the moon and the earth are different. So they could not have come from the same evolutionary ancestor. Jerry E. Bishop wrote this. He said, quote, To the surprise of scientists, The chemical makeup of the moon rocks is distinctly different from the rocks on Earth. This difference implies that the moon formed under different conditions, and it means that any theory on the origin of the planets now will have to create the Earth and the moon in different ways. The moon and the Earth, you see, even have different structures, and therefore they have different origins which is totally contrary to both the big bang and to this fission theory and this but this does agree perfectly with what with the genesis account because we find in the genesis account that the earth was created on day one whereas the moon was not created until day four along with the stars and the sun so the genesis account has no problem with the fact that the planet's are of a different substance than the sun, or that even our moon is of a different substance than the earth. Well, the same problem of having different structures exists for a more popular theory, another cosmogony, which states that our solar system formed from a cloud of swirling gas, particles, and dust. Now, again, where the gas and the particles and the dust came from nobody knows they don't talk about that but this theory and i got this out of the world book encyclopedia this theory this theory also has to explain the reversed axial rotations of uranus and venus as well as the orbital reversed orbital rotations of one-third of the moons in our solar system Here's what I'm saying, okay? They say that this gas and dust particles was here, and then it formed like this, and then it started spinning, and pretty soon it produced our solar system with the different planets and the moons. Well, everything is swirling in the same direction, okay? Clockwise, let's say, clockwise. Well, I think God purposely did this, but he has two planets, Uranus and Venus, which are not rotating the way all the other planets are rotating on their axis. Those two planets are oddballs. They're rotating the opposite way. All right, then he also has one-third of the moons are not going around their planets the same way. They're going this way, (laughs) one-third. So in other words, everything couldn't have happened from that spiral and that spinning, like they say. Do you understand me? All right. Now, if all the bodies of our solar system therefore spun off of the same swirling gas cloud, they would all be rotating and they would all be revolving in the same direction. But they're not. God did that. I know God did that. Just to disprove that little theory. Furthermore, although I'm not going to be able to take the time to get into this, um, the first and the second laws of thermodynamics, which no scientist doubts as proven scientific laws. These are firm, established scientific laws. First and second law of thermodynamics. Both of them together prevent any kind of evolutionary theory about the beginning of the universe. The first law, which is the law of energy mass conservation, States that energy and mass can be converted from one form to another form, but they cannot be created or destroyed. In other words, no one can create any more energy or any more matter than is already in the universe. Well, this first law teaches, therefore, that the universe, therefore, could not have created itself. The second law, which is the law of energy decay, this is the law we all hate so much because everything is always decomposing, always going downhill. You know, we're getting older, our bodies are getting more and more decrepit, our houses need painting, the the weeds will take over our garden. That's all part of the second law of thermodynamics, the law of energy decay. It states that every system left to itself always tends to move from order to disorder. And this law requires the universe to have had a beginning. You know, if if you wind something up, that means there was a time when it was initially wound. I mean, if, if something is winding down, it therefore had a time when it was first wound. Now, even though scientists cannot give an account for the origin of energy or matter or even tell us why the total of energy and mass is conserved, that's the first law, we find that the Bible does have the answer. It offers us the answer. God created both energy and matter. And since he has ceased from his creative works, when did he cease? After the sixth day. Energy can no longer be created. See, scientists have such a difficult time. Why can't we create more energy? Well, it's because God finished his creative work. And he's the only one who can create energy or matter. The reason energy cannot be destroyed is because God, it says in Hebrews 1.3, is upholding all things by the power of his word, or by the word of his power. Now, a process which results in greater order, the things are getting better and better and more complex, which is what evolution teaches, is a process which is contrary to the second law of thermodynamics, you know, the law that says everything is going down. Such a process is not only very rarely found, but very limited and temporary in effect. In other words, if you ever find anything that's going uphill, like something going from disorder to order, that is very rare to find, number one, it's very limited and it's very temporary, doesn't last for very long. However, evolution must have billions of years, billions of years of this continuous violation of the law that things are going from disorder to order in order to even be remotely possible. So the second law of thermodynamics actually renders the evolutionary theory as being virtually impossible. I don't know if you're grasping all this. It's in your notes. You can talk to your husbands or your sons or some man and have them explain it to you. But these two laws totally make evolution impossible. They do. If you understand them, they make it impossible. And by the way, the Bible also speaks about this universal bondage to decay and to disorder and to everything going down. You know, they don't have an answer for it why doesn't everything get better and better and evolve up 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 why is everything going down 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 well the bible has the answer in romans 8 20 i mean 8 uh, 20 to 22 it explains that the groaning and the travailing of the whole creation is a result of what the fall and the curse that's why it explains both of these laws to us the scripture does Well, the bottom line is that we don't have to wonder how the universe came into existence and we don't have to try to philosophically reason how it all came about because we have divine revelation from the creator himself. And he told us how he did it. How did he do it? He spoke it into being. He took six days to make it all And on one particular day, day four, he filled the heavens with the stars and with our sun and with our moon. And just believe it because he said it. And all the evidence points to it, too. All right, the commission of the heavenly bodies. Fourth part of our outline. The simple statement, and God said, which we find in verse 14, and which we also find repeated over and over again throughout the Genesis account, gives us the mode of creation. It was not a chance product of spontaneous generation. It was not the result of some irrational Big Bang, which had absolutely no purpose. It was not the result of some process, whatever it might be, which took billions of years of time. The words, and God said do not even carry the slightest hint of the idea of a process such as theistic evolution or progressive creationism teach. Those are the, some of those compromise theories, you know, where they try to compromise the Bible's account of creation with evolution. but God, And God said allows for neither one of those compromise positions. God spoke and... Things came into existence from nothing, ex nihilo, and they came into exes- existence in full maturity. They did not evolve. They did not develop. He, com- he created them complete. On the fourth day of the creation week, God spoke the stars of the universe into existence as well as our own sun and moon, and probably this is when all the other planets and and their moons were also created. His purpose for the lights of the firmaments was fourfold. Now I do need to find my outline buried in this pile somewhere. Here they are. The commission of the heavenly bodies, the purpose for them was to separate, to calculate, to dominate, and to illuminate. I'm just going to go through these really quickly. We read in verses 14 and 18 that the lights of the firmament were to divide the day from the night. In other words, to separate the day from the night and to divide the light or separate the light from the darkness. So these luminaries of the universal heavens had the same function as the created light of day one, which also divided the light from the darkness, according to verse 4, and which brought about the existence of day and night, according to verse 5 since the luminaries of day four had the same purpose and the same function in this regard as the light of day one we therefore again suggest to you that god merely attached the light that he had created on day one to the heavenly bodies which he created on day four and from then on those heavenly bodies maintained the day and night cycle yet the sun you see was not the cause of Of daylight god was and he was again stressing the importance of worshiping him and not worshiping the sun in other words worshiping the creator and not his creation i think he also did this because man has such a tendency to i guess you could call it worship the stars or or go to the stars trust in the stars how many people check their daily horoscope in the newspaper you know Astrology and their signs, you hear people saying, you know, what sign are you? The signs of the zodiac. All of that is, uh, is warned against in the scripture, not to put your trust in, in the creation, but put your trust in the creator. Well, secondly, not only did the, is the, uh, are the heavenly bodies to separate, but they are for us to calculate. A second function or purpose was that they are to be for signs, and for seasons and for days and for years. As we know, our calendars are based on the patterns which are established by the Earth and the Sun and the Moon. Days are determined by the Earth's rotation on its axis. Months are determined by the... Oh, here's the Earth rotating here. That's days. Months are determined by the Moon's orbit around the Earth. And years are determined by the Earth's rotation around the sun. And the sun's rays hitting on the Earth, on its axis, at, a, at, a, at different degrees, degrees causes the various seasons which we have. And it says they are for signs, for seasons, for days, and for years. The seasons are important because they provide periods farming you know for agriculture and for the migration of animals and for the religious festivals that are mentioned in the scripture and for other celebrations of man as well as what do seasons give us variety and beauty don't they it's interesting that the all the heavenly bodies provide or tell us about the well, let's see, the days, the seasons, the years, and even the months. But where do we find um, biblical, uh, the basis for, I can't get this out right, the basis for a week, a seven-day week? is Not from the heavenly bodies. But you know every people on the face of the earth, in all generations from the ancient men up, they've always lived out their lives by weeks. And yet it has nothing to do with the way we spin on our axis or rotate around the sun or the moon rotates around us. So where did it come from? It came from God's creating the whole world in in a seven-day creation week. Six days of work and one day of rest. That's where the week came from. There's no other explanation for it. Men have no other explanation. All right, it's also, they are also to dominate. Because the sun and the moon are the God-assigned agents by which our time in light and darkness are determined, and the sun and the moon are the God-assigned agents by which the calendar is determined, these two great lights essentially rule, look at verse 16, they rule the day and the night. They dominate life on earth to the degree that they determine when we work. When do we work? Most of us in the daylight, and they determine when we sleep, and they determine pretty much when we eat, and when we plant crops, and when we harvest crops, and when we celebrate certain holidays, and when we do spring cleaning, and when we do fall raking, and when we do winter shoveling, which fortunately we don't do too much down here, but they kind of rule over our lives, don't they? And that's what it means there in verse 16. Verse 16. Just as God created a purpose for every movement of the sun and the moon and the earth, so too did he create a purpose for man. Man's every movement should also have purpose. It says in Ecclesiastes three one: To everything there is a season and a time for every purpose under the heaven. The reason for the heavenly bodies is not to give light and to control day and night and time and season's For themselves but for man they were created to enable man to be able to fulfill his purpose on earth man's primary purpose of course is to do what to glorify his creator to glorify god the lights of the heavens are very very faithful in accomplishing their purpose because they obediently follow the laws established by god to control them they are consistent aren't they i mean throughout your whole lifetime you can depend on them when you go out if it isn't cloudy you can look up and you can see the stars and scientists astronomers always know where they will be they are very faithful and they are very consistent and in this they are also a sign to man who should likewise be faithful and consistent in his obedience to his maker. Furthermore, the lights of the heavens can be clearly seen by all men, right? No matter where they live, they can be seen. And this is a testimony or a sign to believers, to Christians, that we are to also let our light so shine before men, before all men, so that they might see our good works and glorify their Father who is in heaven. So the the luminaries are not only signs of the passing of time so that we can keep our calendars straight and of faithfulness and of consistency in obedience. And they are not only signs for Christians to also shine forth Christ's light within them to the world, but they are signs which men use for direction. You know, they're like natural heavenly compasses. Men, whether they're on land or sea, can look up and find const- certain constellations and, and get their bearing and know where they are and which direction they're facing and they are also signs which declare the absolute glory and power and wisdom of the God who placed them in the sky the heavens declare the glory of God and the firmament showeth his handiwork they also illuminate that's pretty obvious that's the, um, the last function is that they illuminate and I'll just skip over that The completion of the creation of the heavenly bodies, our last part five of our outline, God looked over his handiwork of day four, and what did he say once again? He said, it is good. He saw that it was good. The lights of the firmament fulfilled their function and their purpose, which means that from the day of their creation, they gave forth their light. You know, in other words, I'm saying again that... That's one reason they say the earth is billions of years old, because they say we couldn't see the stars because they're so many light years away. It would have taken billions of light years for the light to get to earth, so we have to be billions of years old. But we're saying that they fulfilled their function on day one. God made them fully mature, and from the very beginning, Adam could see the stars in the sky. So it did not take the light from the stars, millions and billions of light years to reach the earth. They fulfilled their purpose on the very first day of their creation. So everything now was ready for habitation. The living creatures which God would first of all create to fill the skies and the waters and then the living creatures he would create to fill the land, including animals and man, now had everything that they would need to survive. Everything was put in place. And the fourth day closed out with the repeated pattern that we find on all of the other creation days. It says, and the evening and the morning were the fourth day. You see, over and over again, God wants to make it perfectly clear that all these mighty acts of creation occurred in literal 24-hour periods called days bounded by evening and morning. Evolutionists and materialists have attempted to explain how all of the heavenly bodies of the cosmos could have evolved by spontaneous generation. They've come up with all of their little theories. All of the trips to the moon and all of the satellites which have been sent to space and all of the other orbiting paraphernalia that they have out there. I mean, they've made our um, our solar system like a junkyard with all the stuff that they have sent up there. You know, even just what they have spent on trips to the moon and, and trying to investigate the moon has cost us $20 billion just for the moon alone to say nothing about the satellites they're sending elsewhere. All of this has given them absolutely no insight whatsoever into how the bodies of the universe could have evolved. They're no smarter now than they were when they began. They can't even explain how the moon evolved, much less our solar system, much less our galaxy, much less our local group, much less the universe. And that's very understandable, since they didn't. They didn't evolve, did they? God spoke them into being. God made them. He made the two great lights and the stars also. I just love that. Just throw them in for measure. Let's pray. Father, we do just stand in awe and wonder at the amazing power and infinite wisdom of your person. And we praise you for showing us through natural revelation your character and your mightiness and your glory and your handiwork, just the the little work you can do with your fingers like when we crochet or knit or something. That's how you just put the stars out there. It's just so awesome and it's so overwhelming. And yet, though you've numbered the stars, you know how many there are even though we never can count them. And you've named every one of them as the scripture has said. Yet you care so much about man that the stars are nothing in comparison. You've numbered even the hairs on our head, you know when even a sparrow falls to the ground. You care so much how thankful we are or should be, to be privileged to have a God who cares so much, who loves so much that He sent His Son to die for us so that we might spend eternity with you and fellowship with you and And spend all of eternity learning about you. Because that's what it will take. And we'll still not know the half of it. Father, we love you and we thank you for all that you have shown us in this creation account. I pray that we'll share what we learn here with others. Who are so mixed up and confused and have been so deceived by what men have told them. About the origin of all things. we have the truth and we need to share it. And, Father, if there is one here who has never come to know you, I pray that she would settle that today and ask Christ into her heart and be born again into your kingdom. Father, we love you. I pray that you go with each of us this week and help us to expand our minds because now we know that we have the potential to learn one million times more than we know now. So thank you, Lord. We love you, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.